Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Friday the 29th of September and you're very welcome to this additional politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. The British writer Robert Harris has explored politics, power and their historical consequences in novels set everywhere from ancient Rome to 20th century Europe. His latest book, Munich, is a gripping fiction set over the course of the four-day crisis talks between the British, French and Nazi German governments, which prevented the outbreak of a Europe-wide war in September 1938. As a former BBC journalist, political editor of The Observer and award-winning columnist, Robert Harris is also an acute observer of the contemporary political scene. I met him in the company of our own political editor, Pat Leahy, to discuss appeasement, British identity and the challenges of Brexit. Robert Harris, you are very welcome. Your new book, Munich, uh, is a fantastic read. Um, it tells me about a historical moment which I thought I knew something about and it didn't just shed fresh light on it. It told me that perhaps I didn't know as much about it as I thought. Maybe for the benefit of our listeners, you could tell us about what happened in Munich in September 1938. Well, um, it was the the climax, really, of the policy of appeasement. Um, my novel opens on uh, the Tuesday, uh, the 27th of September, when it looked as though there was going to be war. Um, Chamberlain had made two visits to Hitler and had tried to, um, got him, he thought, everything he wanted, which was that the Sudetenlands with their three and a half million Germans would be returned to Germany or given to Germany. Uh, But then Hitler announced he needed to take them immediately by the weekend. And um, it looked like there would would be war. Uh, And um, Chamberlain broadcast that evening to the country, the famous faraway people of, of whom we know nothing. Then he chaired a meeting of the cabinet. And then he wrote a letter to Mussolini, uh, had it delivered by the British ambassador that night or early the next morning. And um, suddenly the war was averted. Mussolini said to Hitler, well, you know, if, you, if war does start, we'll stand with you, obviously, but I think you should pause and talk. And Hitler found that he had to pause and talk. And so uh, on the uh, Friday, on the Thursday, um, Chamberlain flew to Munich and the French Prime Minister, Deladier, and Mussolini also joined them in Munich. And uh, in the early hours of the following morning, a deal was signed. And uh, although our iconic memory of Munich is actually of Chamberlain waving a piece of paper which mm. was something outside the Munich Saying agreement. Saying peace in our time. Yes, he said that when he got back to Downing Street. Um, that was a separate thing, completely off his own bat. He, he took a piece of paper into Hitler to get him to sign it. And that happens towards the end of the book and I'll ask you about that in a minute, but I suppose I would have subscribed to the received view of Chamberlain is that he was the epitome of appeasement, which is this uh, a way of thinking about Britain's place in the world as well as how to de- how to deal with the threat of totalitarianism, which obviously fell into huge disrepute because of what happened afterwards. But you see it perhaps in a slightly different way. I do see it in a different way. Yes, um, um, 
First of all, we have to, if you're going to read this novel or, for me, write it, you have to try and clear your head of hindsight. And there's an epigraph at the beginning of the book, which is that from the British historian Maitland, um, things that are now in the past were once in the future. Um, So for a British statesman in 1938, Hitler seemed considerably less mad than the Kaiser, uh, for instance. Um, And the great crimes were lay ahead. Uh, and it was still possible that if the um, potential flashpoints of conflict could be isolated and removed, it was felt to be worth a try. Or to, it seemed to possible, attempt at least. to at, yes, exactly to attempt to avert war. Um, we, given that we now know Hitler was such a monster, and given that we know that the whole enterprise was doomed, of course it looks. Uh, it's hard for us to see it in a fair light, but I don't think there was much alternative for any British leader at that time but to try and avoid war with Germany. Not only was the country militarily unprepared for war, it was morally unprepared for war. It was less than 20 years since the First World War in which three-quarters of a million people from the British Isles, including Ireland, had died, and uh, there was simply no appetite to fight again. So what do you make, then, of the counter-argument to that, that the rise of Hitler from the moment he took power in 1933 through to this moment in 1938, that there might have been a number of points at which the democracies of Europe might have been stronger in preventing his rise. Well, with hindsight, of course, if it had avoided the war, although it, only, it would have been at the cost of a war, uh, and maybe a whole series of wars stretching on for many years, who knows? There was no way there wasn't going to be some bloodshed, I'm, uh, I think. Uh, yes, it's possible. But, you know, it's like maybe one day... Pe- people in the future will look back and say, well, why didn't the, the NATO go to war against Putin over Crimea? I mean, now seems perfectly obvious that they should have done that. We could see that what Putin is like, but um, is there any appetite here or in Britain to go to war on that issue? No, there is none. It's a feeling that he's occupied his own backyard, which is what people thought about the Rhineland when Hitler reoccupied it in 1936 in defiance of the Versailles Agreement. Um, You know, I tell you, I was trying to think to convey to people appeasement. Let's think of a modern example of appeasement. The Good Friday Agreement. Here is um, violent terrorists who've tried to blow up the entire British government and indeed had tried to kill the Prime Minister, John Major, again, not long afterwards, with all the attendant, you know, feeling and so on about it. And yet, nevertheless, there was a quite brave decision to say, OK, we don't like this. It goes against everything we've ever stood for. But what are the flashpoints? What are the historic flashpoints here? And can, with goodwill, they be removed? Um, It seems to me that is a form of appeasement. And a lot of people, as you know, accused the Blair and Major of appeasement. But it was was an attempt to solve a problem, putting aside... uh, Try, trying to remove ancient tensions and trying to find a, a, a better way forward. The, the analogy is not exact, I know. Sure. But look at it in those terms, and Chamberlain seems different, it seems to me. He also comes across as, and maybe this just comes with the turf of the way we think about this period now, as a stronger uh, individual with more strongly held beliefs and a, 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 more, a more powerful politician. Than, oh, he, than he comes across as in, in, the, in the popular historical memory now. The politician he's most similar to is Margaret Thatcher, actually. He was uh, provincial. Uh, he was treated with some snobbery by the uh, Tory establishment. 
uh, despite the fact that he came from such a distinguished family. Uh, he was uh, brilliant at the economy. Uh, he was a very successful chancellor. He was uh, dominated his colleagues completely by sheer hard work and mastery of detail. And he had Thatcher's sort of remorseless forensic cross-examining and, and, and then impatience with other points of view. Uh, he's a stubborn man, uh, difficult to deflect once he'd taken a course, decided on a course of action. Um, and he might have been wrong-headed, but he was very far from the weak um, kind of um, figure that we see with the umbrella and the wing collar. Most of your most of your books, in one way or another, um, include a sort of an analysis of a, or a structural exploration of power and how it works and how it's exerted, how it's gained and how it's lost. And th- this book is no similar. And one of the things I loved about it is just the, the sort of the forensic detail in which you describe the way the people move around 10 Downing Street at the time and get in and out of their cars and are transported to airports to be transported in rather terrifying uh tin cans to, you know, halfway across the continent and all that stuff. And I wonder, as a former political editor yourself, stripping away all that stuff, how different is the dynamic of being a Prime Minister of the United Kingdom residing in 10 Downing Street in 2017 from what it was in 1938? I think, in a way, Chamberlain was the first modern Prime Minister. He was the first Prime Minister to, re- to hold a summit meeting. He was the first Prime Minister to use shuttle diplo- diplomacy. The first to really make uh, himself almost like the head of state in the way that he, he completely overrode his cabinet colleagues, did things without consulting the foreign minister. Um, he ran a p- very personalised small team within Downing Street with a very tight inner cabinet. Um, so I think, and he had a very modern understanding of the media, which it does not really fit with what we think of him. But, for instance, the famous piece of paper was a carefully staged, managed um, piece of theatre that Chamberlain devised. People said to him when he was in Munich and going to get Hitler to sign what were essentially his own words that he'd used earlier in the week, um, People said, um, well, this could be a disaster. And he said, well, uh, if he doesn't stick to it, uh, the whole world will see it and it could bring the Americans in. So I'm going to make a big thing of it when I get back to London. Hence the pulling it out, waving it, reading it out, the indelible images that it gave us, which destroyed his reputation, of course. But Mm -hmm. nevertheless, they did nail Hitler to this promise. And when a year later he completely tore it up, I think it did have an effect on world opinion. Do you think that mattered? Yes, Does he sort uh, of indicate that in the book, that he, he, he set up that the next time is definitely the last time? Yeah, really. no, no, no. Or this I is mean, definitely the last you know, time. The, Chamberlain was the biggest rearmor in British history. Chamberlain, by 1939, was spending 50% of all government tax revenue on armaments. Um, uh, the time between 1938 and the summer of 1940, when we were had our backs to the wall, uh, the size of the RAF increased tenfold. So, I mean, one argument for Munich has always been that it bought time to rearm. But I think more important than that was the moral, or as important, was the moral um, high ground that it mm. gave the British. And also, Churchill was able to articulate, I think, a general feeling that there was no point in trying to have peace with Hitler, that he, he had to go on, we had to get to the end of it and remove him altogether because his word could not be trusted. And I think that Chamberlain 
um, did those two things. He provided the means to survive in 1940 by the rearmament program, and he gave the country the unity, actually, which Churchill voiced. I want to bring in Pat in a second here because he's sitting very quietly and, and, and patiently, but I did want to ask you one last question because it's something which I think you may have some, some role in as a phenomenon, which is um, the British fascination slash obsession with the Second World War, with its own Second World War history, which, if anything, seems to grow or become more extreme uh, the further we become historically removed from it. Do you think that's the case? And if so, why do you think it is? I think it's very strong. I mean, I sat uh, a few weeks ago in a local cinema uh, ready to watch Dunkirk and uh, with its, you know, references to Churchill's speeches. And then there was, a, but there was a trailer beforehand with Churchill addressing the House of Commons, Gary Oldman playing Churchill, we shall fight them on the beaches and so on. And uh, it's, it is, I think it's our national obsession. And, um, is it a healthy one? No, I don't think it's at all healthy. Part of the reason that I wanted to write Munich is because of this other half of the story which never gets told. And we've fallen into this very simplistic kind of Churchillian myth. Um, and I think it does us damage. And I think that, you know, it's helped lead to Brexit. Um, the British are the only nation in Europe who feels good about themselves in the Second World War. You know, we we feel that, you know, it was it was our moment, our, our greatest moment. And in some mm. ways, uh, it probably was. Uh, but France and Germany, Italy, Holland, you know, they their remembrance of the war is of shame, terror, uh, horror. Um, and uh, therefore, this different conception of what Europe is, um, I think, is has led, because no one escapes the history, either as a person or as a country, has led to the state we're in now. But actually, I've, I've seen it argued, and I've been reading lately about the Brexit uh, campaign, that one of the reasons that the vote to leave the European Union was was possible is because the generation for whom the horrors of European conflict were so real and so visceral, many of them having taken part in, uh, in the war themselves, were a generation that brought Britain into the common market so that the then, generation that of then and voted and the, 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 the voters of the 1970s. Yes, yeah. in, the, in the 1970s, uh, this is far too long ago for me, of course, Hugh, but, uh, but you'll, you'll remember when... You I know, was a very small boy, When, but. when uh, you know, uh, British war comics were a staple of, very part of, of, Commando, of, I remember. of reading yeah. for, for kids, both in, in the UK. Uh, and for here, whereas now that period has passed and memories are uh, uh, memories are necessarily dimmed because of the the passage of time. So it seems to me that if there is that hangover, that historical hangover, that historical force of the Second World War in the British memory, it is one that is receding, and it comes yes. it comes perhaps in waves, like when people go to see Dunkirk or when people read your books. But but as a for as a quotidian force in British Perhaps, politics. Perhaps, but, but at the same diminished. time, and we'll stop talking amongst ourselves for a minute because we're here to talk to you, to you of course, Robert, but at the same time, it seems to me that you have the increased, uh, almost oppressive presence of, you know, the requirement to wear a poppy for, it seems, an increasingly long time every year and various other sort of symbolic attachments to this event, even as it gets further and further away. Yes, I don't think there's any doubt about that. I mean, one of the great disasters of the... Uh, remain campaign for the in, in the EU referendum was the fact that it was all scares about economics and it never was the positive case put 
Uh, and the best, the person who put it best, actually, on television was the actress Sheila Hancock in her 80s, who, uh, in one of the TV debates, said, was just on it as sort of in the, in the panel, and said, listen, I remember bombing. I was evacuated. My father fought in the war. My husband was a bomber pilot and was shattered by the whole experience. And we hated the Germans. And it's a kind of miracle for me what's happened since then, that this, that this European project is taking place. And sure, there's plenty wrong with it, but compared to what there was before, you know, it's not something that should be thrown away. We should, if it needs to be changed, we should stay within it to change it. It was very, very powerful. And that point was not made enough. And as you say, she is of a generation that remembers it. And I mm. think by and large, those who had the, the visceral experience of the war uh, tended to understand what the, the dynamic of Europe better than those who were born in the 50s, um, who, for whom who grew up on this myth of, 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 of our finest hour, and who think that it somehow that the world owes us a living because of what happened uh, 70 odd years ago. But that, that direct memory and very concrete political lessons that were taken from the, the conflict, as you say, have been replaced, it seems to me, by a kind of Johnsonism of the greatest country in the world and we will stand alone, taking mm. the sort of comic book messages or comic book lessons from... Sure. The war, so it's from, the generation the war, who read those comic books than you're the, talking about who are now... As opposed to the generation driving, that actually experienced the, the war. But then when Theresa May, for example, goes to Florence for no apparent reason, I couldn't quite figure out why she went to Florence, but um, and she talks about how British people always had an ambiguity at best or something more negative in terms of their, the way that they thought about their relationship with the European Union uh, or, or, or union, union in Europe. Is that true? Or... I mean, it is true that, that there has always been a greater resistance, I suppose, to the European Union in British politics, hasn't there, for at least a generation, if not two generations? Yes, I think there's... I mean, I don't think that most British people share the federalising dream, mm. the single army, single government, single bank, single currency. Um, I do think that they that is something that they find difficult to take um, or certainly find it more difficult than even quite you know, nationalistic countries like France. But uh, I think there was appalling remark for her to make and, uh, and almost as bad as her appalling um, a citizen of the world as a, as a citizen of nowhere, um, which I found shaming um, and actually against the whole spirit of what this Johnson romantic myth of the British. I mean, after the Second World War, there were half a billion people with the right of residence in the United Kingdom. That was everyone who'd been in, was a member of the Commonwealth, could go and live in Britain. I mean, when we were at our zenith, we didn't, we, we didn't tr pull up the drawbridge in the way that we do now. Um, uh, no, I think it's a betrayal of everything that we stood for, the outward-looking nature of the country. I don't recognise my own country in many ways. And maybe the, one of the ways in which this might have been framed much better for a British electorate is that what you talk about, the British reluctance perhaps to to, uh, to go gung-ho for, you know, more and more centralisation or more and more federalism or staying out of the single currency. From an Irish point of view, Pat, that was, that was sort of a, a healthy thing because Britain was a significant break on some of those processes, which we weren't particularly in favour of as well. And one of the things that we have to face into now, now that um, uh, 
Britain is going out, is that we don't have that bulwark anymore against a number of those instincts, which we which we wouldn't be particularly keen on either. Oh, for sure, yeah. I mean, there's no doubt but that, you know, the departure of Britain from the EU is the departure of Ireland's single single biggest ally, mm. not just, okay, there would be, yeah, tend to be on different sides when it comes to the CAP uh, and that, but on economic matters, on tax matters, on on the, the, the sort of vision that uh, for a future federalised Europe that, uh, that Robert referred to and which uh, Macron has fleshed out uh, in his speech the, this week. That is not something that the Irish government or I suspect the Irish public believes to be within its its interest, but now one of the main bulwarks uh, towards that, at least amongst the old, uh, the Western European uh, countries, has uh, will be removed. And that will make council summits a lonelier place for, uh, for Irish leaders, I think, in the future. So does that mean that, uh, obviously, things aren't as extreme as they were in 1938 but in a way we might feel a little bit like the Czechs did that we're far (laughs) if not far away we're still a little country of which people don't necessarily don't necessarily know or care that much about we have a fear that we're going to be crushed I think you know between the grinding wheels of the needs of the larger countries in Europe well it's a who knows I mean I think it's an alarming thing to throw away something that however imperfect was working for something you have no knowledge of what it's eventually going to be. And I think there is now a dawning realisation among those who advocated Brexit of the complexities and the difficulties. And when I wrote the novel with this little group of Foreign Office officials bouncing around in this plane, with us, with us Chamberlain said, no cards in their hand to play, <laughs> flying to Europe. Mm, yeah, uh, they did have a, had a definite <laughs> ring to it, all right, yeah. <laughs> I did think we'd been here before, um, and that is, you know, uh, in that sense, Munich 1938 is a re- more realistic photograph of Britain's uh, power in the mm. world than when we're up with our backs against the wall in, in the summer of 1940. I mean, Chamberlain was told by the British Chiefs of Staff that the British Empire would not survive uh, a world war, that you couldn't take on Japan, Germany and Italy. It was impossible. And of course, this was correct. Chamberlain was right. It, you know, a, a world war would spread, would spend, spell the end of the British Empire. So, in this, this is another curious, um, you know, ambivalence or weirdness that we are sort of uh, ambiguity, I should say, that we are uh, celebrating um, the very the moment <laughs> when the empire ceased to be uh, feasible. Speaking of which, what are we to make of the, to me, seemingly bizarre statements by some members of the Conservative Party, in particular, that. Britain is about to embark on a, on a great new age of being, I suppose, the Singapore of the North, uh, a beacon of light to the free market world, uh, a place that shows Europe how things should really be done. I mean, it's complete fantasy. It is a fantasy, unfortunately. For one thing, the British people, wouldn't, who have a very strong social democratic tradition, would never settle for being a kind of Singapore with the inequalities. I mean, already one sees Jeremy Corbyn, there's definite sort of uh, sense of political change in Britain and it's not uh, rightwards and it's not to giving more power to a piratical city of London that is I can assure you that that is not going to happen Uh, no it's the thing that I find amazing about this is I'm 60 years old, so I'm old enough. I can't remember when uh, Macmillan in 61 decided to try and get into the Europe, but I do vaguely remember Harold Wilson, and I certainly remember 
Ted Heath's efforts. And I remember Britain at that time and the constant uh, sense of where were we in the world and, and, uh, and of constant economic crisis and almost also a crisis of national identity that was going on. And Europe settled all that for 40 years. And now with a kind of cavalier abandon and uh, the, uh, the merry tune from the summer of 1940 on our lips, we've leapt back backwards. But I don't know the point at which they want to wind back to. It can't be the 70s, it can't be the 60s or the 50s, it can't be the 30s. I mean, where are we heading? To the 19th century? At what point? The 1580s, they, the, yes. the glory days yes. of the Elizabethan book. Yeah, where, where, where is the end point? That's what I don't understand. It's very, uh, you know, anything that's built on nostalgia like that, I think is always deeply troubling. Although that's a think, very parasitic part. Um, Go yeah, just, do you think, you touched on Corbyn uh, earlier and the, the, the change in the political currency uh, in Britain, do you think, as as Corbyn uh, sought sought to portray at his conference this week, that the the sort of centre of gravity of 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 the British political system has lurched to the left? Well, you know, I st well look, I tell you, I live in a small village in West Berkshire, a Tory area, um, massive Tory majority. I went up into the village yesterday afternoon. Two old boys were there who are talking about Jeremy Corbyn, I think he talks a lot of sense. And, I mean, my jaw, as we novelists would say, hit my chest because I never thought to hear that in such a place. And I think that he, he is cutting through. And uh, the irony is that the right wing of the Tory party will could conceivably bring to power the most left-wing, Venezuelan-loving government in British history and will give it unprecedented powers because of the uh, authority they're giving to the executive to pass or amend or repeal uh, legislation without going through the House of Commons. It's a perfect storm. All we now need is the Queen to die, uh, and that's it <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. I, I honestly don't know where we'll be headed. <laughs> What what would happen if a Corbyn government? I mean, because it's not remotely beyond the bounds of possibility that that a, that Corbyn might come to power in the next you know three three or four years, depending on how the Brexit negotiations go. What sort of a government do you think that would really be? Well, if one takes it on the personnel and on their past statements, and uh, uh, then it will be. Um, it will be like that uh, very British coup government. You know, it will be one of these um, sort of... Uh, uh, I mean, the things that, that, that Corbyn and Macdonald and the people around them are on record of saying um, are outside the mainstream, even of the left of the Labour Party traditionally. Um, Macdonald cites his favourite... his core influences as uh, uh, Trotsky... Uh, Lenin, Marx, and a bit of Rosa Luxemburg. Well, these are not the authors of someone who's a social democrat. Um, but these are politicians uh, who were on the margins of the Labour Party for a generation, more than a yeah. generation, in fact. And is, is, essentially, it seems to me, would have reconciled themselves to that being their position, to being politicians of protest rather than politicians of power. And then by a series of happenstances, actually, have found themselves in a, in a position where they, where they may be in power. And mm. I, I just wonder what happens when, as the Americans say, when, when the rubber hits the road on that. Well, who knows? I mean, there's a, uh, they have a big, called momentum, they have a big organisation behind them. They have captured the Labour Party now. Um, it's a different party. And um, 
it's it's far more like a, a, a protest movement of the sort you see in in Europe, in in Greece or in Spain uh, than um, we are used to in in Britain. Uh, so you know, we are heading into uncharted territory here. Uh, a lot of the young people support uh, Corbyn. I, I suspect that it will, however. Um, in my view, if, if Brexit is to be disrupted in any way, it will be from the left. It will be from the trade unions and the Labour Party and an alliance with other left-wing groups in Europe. Uh, that is the way that things could change. And there's no doubt in my mind that the reason Britain left the EU was because the, the, the support from the Labour Party was so half-hearted. Mm. If, if Corbyn had put a tenth of the energy into the referendum campaign he put into the general election, I don't think, um, I'd, I'd think the result might have been different. And of course there's Part a lot of, of paradoxes reason, within that, one of which is that that youth support which you talk about tends to be far more pro-European. Yes. Far more European than he is. Yes, and I think that that will uh, tell. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen in the next year. I think we'll, I think a year from now things will be much clearer. But it's, it's fairly obvious that the Labour Party is inching towards uh, a sort of commitment to the single market and probably a commitment to a, refer a second referendum. Um, th that's obviously quite smart territory for them to occupy. Uh, and uh, I could see... Uh, a quite massive uh, victory for the Labour Party in a general election. I mean, friends of mine who are in a Tory party, one in particular, told me he thought that the Tory party would be annihilated. Once people realised that, that, that Brexit was so f ill thought out and the economic consequences are potentially so serious that there, there will be only one group that will get the blame. Part, part of the reason for Labour's caution on Brexit, apart from Corbyn's own traditional antipathy towards it, is electoral. There's an mm. awful lot of Labour MPs in Northern, predominantly northern constituencies whose voters sure. voted to, to leave. But do you think that they may change their minds? The voters? Yes. I think that this is why really one has to wait until this time next year um, to see how the thing feels. But uh, if, if, it, if it does become clear that there are serious economic problems ahead, uh, then I think that people will change their mind, yes. I mean, it's, it's, there hasn't, if, there's any, if there's been anything, there's been a slight move away uh, from support for leave. But it's still 50-50, and one could not really say how then a, a referendum might turn out. But uh, in a year, there might be a more decisive move. I don't know. We'll just have to wait and see. But um, it's, it's a very strange atmosphere in Britain at the moment. You know, it's clear that no preparation was really being made for Brexit. No facilities were being created, physical infrastructure in ports, no recruitment of the number of people needed to administer it, no computer programs for the tariffs and so on were, were being commissioned. You know, nothing was being done. So it's a sort of fantasy that's been underway. There was never any real, realistic possibility of Britain leaving in 2019. Can I ask you, finally, because this book is about a moment of failure to confront totalitarian fascism in Europe, which, even not looking at it through the prism, as we do, back through time and what happened in the, in the months and years that followed, is a key moment in, in, in modern history. And a lot of people think, rightly or wrongly, and maybe it's not a, it's, it, it's not a fair parallel, that for the first time since the war, we're seeing stirrings of those same inclinations again and the rise of 
the parties of the far right and the populist right, including recently now the, the AFD in Germany. Do you think that there's any lessons that we can learn now from what was done in the 1930s in terms of preventing that happening again? Um, I, I don't know that there are very many easy lessons to learn. I, I, I agree with you that there is a sense of um, uh, na growing nationalism, pride in a kind of um, almost a racial nationalism. Uh, that is an element of that strongly in Brexit. There's obviously an element in Germany. And in America, uh, the swastikas paraded through the streets, the way that Trump refused to really condemn it, um, but merely issued general condemnation of violence. Uh, those are ugly phenomena. Um, and I think that the... Uh, well, I don't think there's much comfort to be taken from the 1930s, and I'm not sure there are very many easy <clears throat> lessons either, um, especially in view of what's happening in America. Um, you know, the, the enemy is not easy to see. The enemy isn't wearing black, sh you know, uniforms and stomping around in torch-lit parades, uh, easy to identify. The enemy is all around us. One thing in all my novels, I take a view that Society has um, broadly decent people, uh, a very few highly talented people, and maybe five or ten percent of psychopaths. And the and the importance of any political civil society is to keep the psychopaths out of power. And when the psychopaths get into power, the lesson of history is that's when you've got trouble. And um, no one looking around at the moment can be too uh, sanguine about where we stand. With that happy thought, we'll leave it there. Robert Harris, thanks very much indeed for joining us. And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks also to Pat Leahy for joining us today. And thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon and engineer, JJ Vernon. Remember, you can find us on irishtimes.com slash podcasts, or you can subscribe via iTunes or your preferred podcast provider. You can always mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com, or you can find me on Twitter. So until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening. <laughs>